0: Welcome to The Race to the White House, where we cover everything you need to know about the 2016 US elections. Join us as we dive deep into the people, policy and political manoeuvres that will decide who becomes the 45th President of the United States of America. I'm Emma Lancaster and I'll be your host for the next 48 days as we count down to November 8th. And a fun fact for you, as we know, 48 is the number of days until America goes to the polls, but it was also the number of superdelegates won by Bernie Sanders. So joining me in the studio now to provide us with their excellent analysis and dissect the news of the week and the issues that matter is Brendan O'Connor. Hi, Brendan.
1: Good to talk with you again.
0: And you, and also uh, Tom Switzer. Welcome, Tom.
2: G'day, Emma. Great to be here.
0: Okay, so both Tom and Brendan are experts in US politics, history and culture from the US Study Centre at the University of Sydney. They're helping us to examine the high-stakes race between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, uh, the impact this will have on America and the rest of the world. In the first part of the show today, we look at what has been hitting the news and blowing up on Twitter, and then later on, we'll tackle the big issues this week It's foreign policy. A central function of the US government is to conduct relations with almost 200 other nations in the world. Foreign policy is both what the US chooses to do and not do abroad. Currently, US President Obama's time in office has been characterised by some as a patient diplomacy, but more on that later. To kick us off this week we turn to the campaign minute, where we dissect the news and headlines from the past week. And this week we need to talk about Skittles. <laughs> Donald Trump Jr. is said to have taken the baton from his father after he's used a Twitter post to liken Syrian refugees to poison Skittles and suggest that America should not accept any. Uh, the post reads and I quote: If I had a bowl of skittles and I told you just three would kill you, would you take a handful? That's our Syrian refugee problem. So I'm not sure if you guys have seen the the post by Trump Jr.
1: Well, you're you're more on top of Twitter than both of us, I think. But I um I did see the bowl. Uh, what what is ridiculous about it is that these people are fleeing either ISIS or the Assad regime in Syria, two uh, groupings that the United States government and I think most people in the United States are firmly against or would have uh, very strong reservations about particularly ISIS and also the Assad government if they're aware of it. And so to be treating these people as though they are the, the terrorists that they're trying to get away from Really isn't based on any factual evidence. It's a scaremongering campaign. And in a bigger picture, you might say, why is there so much chaos in that region of the world? Not all of this is caused by the United States, but the United States needs to take some responsibility for the invasion of Iraq and the aftermath of that. And think if refugees are flowing out of that area, the United States might need to. Uh, As uh, Colin Powell you remember Tom said if you break it uh, Mm -hmm. you own it Uh, and so there is a a moral responsibility to take some of these refugees clearly yeah but I mean President Obama who's
2: uh, very sympathetic to their plight has not really increased the refugee intake from the Syrian civil war in fact I think the intake for the United States is even lower than the Australian intake set by Tony Abbott a little bit more than a year ago
1: well there's been a pretty concerted campaign Against taking these Syrian refugees, uh, led by a number of people in the U.S. Congress, so you could say ultimately this this policy stops mm. with the president. But there has been uh, a lot of pushback in the Congress mm. um, from the beginning of the when the when say the Germans were taking uh, you know a very admirable mm. number of mm. people from Syria.
0: The race for the White House, a U.S. election podcast for the non-American. The presidential debate, it's only six days to go until we have the first of the three presidential debates. Uh, The first one is going to be held in... U.S. time, Monday the 26th of September, so we'll be seeing it on the Tuesday. Uh, Trump and Clinton, obviously, only a few days of prep left, and they'll be speaking at Hofstra University in Long Island, New York. Uh, it's just 21 miles away from the scene of the weekend bombing attacks by Ahmad Khan Rahami. Uh, given the recent scares in New York and uh, New Jersey and Minnesota, we'll this give credence that um, national security will be at the top of the agenda when it comes to the debates, and who out of Trump and Clinton do you think is best prepared to exploit this for political gain?
1: I think this is an issue both of them were in some ways relish talking about. I mean people criticise these debates as not really debates because there's not enough backwards and forth, they're really just two sort of sets of speeches uh, or interviews with uh, the uh, moderator. The, the role of the moderator is going to be fascinating in this debate, how much they push back against Trump. Trump will have a blunt message that he will do a better job, that there will be no one who take uh, America, takes American security more seriously than him. And he's going to wipe ISIS off the map pretty easily in a kind of superhero cartoonish way. If Hillary Clinton can make the point that taking out ISIS permanently is... Uh, a 20-year project it requires possibly some occupation of the Middle East at this point in time, then Trump, I think, faces a problem because his solution isn't really uh, able to be achieved in the way that he suggests it will be. Uh, she's got a, probably enough detail to suggest how many people we're talking about, how difficult, say, it was for the Iraqi army of 110,000 to fight against you know, 15,000 ISIS members a year or so back and get defeated – that Trump could then, uh, once detail becomes the kind of issue as it say did on healthcare reform, what he was going to do to get rid of Obamacare and he just kept saying, I'll get rid of the boundaries across state lines, I'll get rid of the boundaries across state lines like a robot, Uh, then Trump uh, will be in dangerous territory.
2: Yeah, I think at first glance, uh, Hillary Clinton is in a pretty good position here. She has more experience with debates. She has more policy substance than Donald Trump. She's less likely going to resort to name-calling and imputing motives. So at first glance, you would think that she would do very well. But look, one thing we've learned about Donald Trump in the course of the last 6 to 12 months is that he's highly volatile and unpredictable. She's never experienced someone like him in a debate format. I think for what it's worth, if he plays his cards right, he could actually use the national security issue to his advantage. He can say that these mindless military interventions in the Middle East that Hillary Clinton has strongly supported makes a bad situation worse. We are reaffirming that potent Sunni narrative in Syria and Iraq and elsewhere in the Arab world that the West, the United States in particular, is in cahoots with these sectarian Shia regimes in Baghdad and Damascus and further alienating Sunni Arabs pushing them towards terror that is a sophisticated sound argument the question is is donald trump capable of making it but he's given the indication that he thinks in those terms but he just hasn't spelt it out and i think it'd be a case of him attacking her from the left but i think with a war-weary public that they're suffering from foreign policy fatigue that message would resonate
1: But how does that fit with his argument that he's going to wipe ISIS out? I mean, how does it fit with this argument that he is going to wipe them off the map? He's inconsistent, isn't he? To put it mildly. Yeah. No, that's a fair point.
0: You know, obviously Clinton will be banking on her experience as previous Secretary of State, but I'd love to be a fly on the wall and find out what her head campaign people are saying to her um, in terms of how to approach this debate and whether it's kind of like just let Trump crash and burn and, and see what he has to say and to come out as the saner character of, of that 90-minute debate. Yeah, I and mean, the or great she-
2: risk for Hillary is that she just falls for the bait and she gets personal and she gets uh, antsy with him and that will not be a good look. Um, because she already has very high levels of untrustworthiness, he's likely to get under her skin. She needs to be cool, calm and
1: collected and stick to the facts. She does face challenges, though, on foreign policy. It's both her strength and potentially a a big weakness because she was... A reasonably enthusiastic supporter of the 2003 Iraq War, she was a strong supporter of getting rid of Colonel Gaddafi. We came, in, we saw, he died in <laughs> Libya. Um, she, you know, she's she's got to own some of that. So uh, mm. a good moderator would say to her, "Look, you have a pattern of believing in military intervention as the last resort, but as something that shouldn't be off the table." And How do you justify that record? Have you learned from the mistakes of that record? And that's somewhere in a normal debate, she would be very vulnerable. But I don't know if it will get to that because Trump, I think, will just disrupt the nature of the conversation, as we saw in the Republican primaries, that Trump, in his attempt to entertain sometimes and there's an attempt to uh fluster the moderator quite frankly mm. uh it sometimes leads to the debate going off track and uh you don't you didn't get to the substance quite often in but the republican what distinguishes
2: debates. this debate the presidential debate from the primary debates is that the audience will be mute now trump thrived on a lively audience that booed and hissed and praised and cheered there'll be none of that So there'll be more emphasis on the specific nature of their responses. And again, here, Hillary has more substance and detail. Trump all too often is bluster. I'm not sure that would work in an audience that's quiet.
0: The debate's moderator is NBC News' Lester Holt. Uh, They have announced the topic areas that will be covered over the course of the 90-minute tilt. Uh, So the announcement came from the Commission on Presidential Debate and says, obviously subject to possible changes because of news developments, the topics for the September 26th debate are as follows, but won't necessarily be brought up in this order. So it's America's direction, achieving prosperity and uh, securing America. So there has been criticism of these topics already. Some have said the debate will double as each candidate's college admission essay, but a more genuine criticism, I think, is, well, these aren't topics, uh, they're more platitudes. So what should we expect, Brendan?
1: I think they are big topics. I mean, a lot of people that Talk about this uh, very key indicator in America in terms of political mood, and it's is the country going in the right direction? Which is a polling question that's been asked for a very long time, and that's a question that has been very negative during the Obama period. Obama's own ratings are one of the highest uh, of any president in their last year. Bill Clinton and Obama really stand out in that regard. Reagan, the higher than Reagan, Hmm. both of them. So, but the direction of the country has been very negative and Hillary Clinton's got to hope that this message about this very, you know, relatively impressive increase in household income, uh, that's occurred over the last year, that some of that, that's getting into the news cycle, uh, that a degree of pessimism that's really characterize this debate can in some ways be moderated because that's Trump's biggest hope the sense that the country is just sliding in the wrong direction mm. a lot of people feel it in their hip pocket and if he can just uh you know come across i think as uh, reasonably well informed in this debate there's a lot of people who are going to vote for change yeah politics is all too often about perception
2: and although it's true, uh, there are a lot of positive economic indicators that we've witnessed in the last few weeks, the widespread perception in middle America is that folks are in a foul mood. Um, and these trends precede uh, the uh, presidency of Barack Obama. They go back to the midpoint of the Bush era. And all too often, we hear about 65, 70% of the American people thinking their country is heading in the wrong direction that it is in serious long-term decline. Trust in institutions is at an all-time low. So here's a great opportunity for Trump as the political outsider to rail against Hillary Clinton as the status quo establishment candidate in the year of the outsider. And he could put her under immense pressure.
0: The race for the White House, where we put the 2016 US election in perspective. To listen to other episodes in this series, head to theconversation.com or tune in on Wednesday nights at 7.30 on 107.3. We've now reached the second part of our show, and today I'm here with Tom Switzer and Brendan O'Connor, and we've just been chatting about what's been making news in the U.S., but now it's time to switch to the big issue of the day and to help us do that We're joined by Dr. Garana Gurgic from the U.S. Study Centre. Garana is an expert in U.S. domestic politics and foreign policy, U.S.-Russia relations, foreign intervention in conflicts, transatlantic relations, ethnic conflicts and conflict resolution. So it sounds like we need you here on the panel today as we discuss foreign policy. Welcome, Garana.
3: Great to be here. Thank you.
0: Every four years, the people of the United States choose a person they think is most likely to keep them free and safe, and also, who's best placed to decide what their country's interests are and how they should be pursued. That person it will decide, you know, who should be spied on, bombed, or invaded, and who should be left alone, who will receive aid, and who gets the cold shoulder and who's warmly embraced on the world stage. So, you know, for nearly eight years now, President Obama has been putting his stamp on U.S. foreign policy, both by what he's done and by what he's chosen not to do. And uh, his legacy includes achievements like the International Climate Agreement in Paris. Um, It also includes festering problems like the Syrian civil war. And that's been going on for around six years now. And of course, the the pivot to Asia. So who in your mind out of Clinton and Trump is the better place candidate to foster and forge relationships with the rest of the world? Garana, what do you think?
3: Well, I would take a step back and uh, maybe provide a bit of context as to what sort of world the 45th president of the United States will inherit on January 20th, 2017. So I think that the challenges ahead of the next president certainly include what you've just mentioned, but uh, also these kind of broader um, phenomena or processes. So uh, first of all, Responding to the ongoing diffusion of global power and and dealing with illiberal regimes that continue to be really alluring models uh, and that have issues with cooperating with the United States um, in Europe and in Asia. um, Addressing the ongoing conflicts that are destabilizing regions, dealing with extremism and terror threat, um, responding to the overwhelming anti-Washington consensus sentiment most visible in the opposition to further trade liberalisation, for instance, uh, dealing with uh, issues like the climate change and, and um, what we've seen just in the past day or so, greatest displacement of people since World War II uh, with the ongoing uh, summit, UN Summit on Refugees.
0: So opposition to free trade has become one of Trump's defining policy ideas. He's part of this growing backlash to free free trade. Um, Senator Bernie Sanders spoke out against free trade deals and it's pushed Hillary Clinton on the issue as well, and under pressure, um, she now opposes the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, the TPP. Uh, So Trump, uh, he has been very distinctive on this issue. He said, if I don't get a change, I would pull out of the North American Free Trade Agreement in a split second, and he, of course, opposes the TPP. He's promised to close the US trade deficit by levying high tariffs on foreign goods, and at one point, he said he'd impose a 45% tariff on China goods. So is Trump further left than Clinton when it comes to trade?
3: (laughs) Well, Trump is certainly not a conservative when it comes to trade, and he's certainly not representing um, the GOP when it comes to Um, trade liberalization and the trends that have been there basically Mm. since the end of the Second World War. What I would say is maybe to put this into a context, we've just seen the release of uh, some of the best economic growth figures in decades in the United States last week with the Census Bureau statistics. Also, the poverty rate has dropped. But if you kind of scratch beneath the surface and look at the nature of these figures, you will see a tale of two Americas Mm -hmm. essentially an America that has been uh, growing uh, and recovering from the GFC and that has been an urban America and this is where most of the democratic quotas are. Uh, On the other hand you've had the kind of suburban areas or rural areas, smaller counties that haven't been recovering quite well and these areas are mostly um, concentrated in a kind of what you would describe as middle America Um, some um, areas that we know are now kind of the Rust Belt that have been before the kind of powerhouses of uh, American development, where actually the jobs have either ceased to exist because of the technological progress or have been outsourced to uh, other uh, states that are able to produce the goods uh, or services at cheaper labor cost, And this is uh, where where uh, Trump has found a lot of supporters, actually, when he speaks of the opposition to NAFTA or the opposition to TPP, he's appealing directly at those people who have been uh, uh, basically left out who are the losers of the the globalization mm. equation and um, the and and Bernie Sanders actually is more representative I would say of the long-standing tradition within the Democratic Party that has been known to to protect labor interests um, amongst others um, who are usually opposed to to free trade and um, I would say that the kind of rhetoric coming from the Sanders campaign is not uncharacteristic of the Democratic Party if anything you should go back to the 2007 2008 the kind of uh the lead up to the 2008 elections when both Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama uh, as candidates have called for the re- revision of the north uh, american free trade agreement so uh this is certainly something uh where you know we have it on record that democrats um who are more of the kind of establishment sort have been uh uh for the kind of uh revision of free trade and for maybe uh revisiting some of the i would say protectionist policies at least or um Trying to to offset the the negatives of free trade. So, uh, where we see Hillary Clinton at the moment is basically pivoting towards the Sanders um, campaign and stance, seeing that uh, there is a a large uh, swath of the Democratic voters who feel uh, the same. But um, certainly, Trump has managed to play well into, into that message and really appeal to the uh, white working class, males especially, uh, who have been uh, left aside with, with the free trade deals.
1: I might, I might push back against a couple of things that have been said. I mean, I think Tom makes a, a good point for, you know, why people have thought, you know, Russia has felt very nervous about the expansion of NATO. But one of the really interesting things of the fall of Paul Manafort who was Trump's sort of inside uh, uh, Washington advisor, uh, someone with a lot of experience, was Manafort had worked in the Ukraine for the pro-Russian forces, manipulating politics there, engaging in a way that I think describing uh, the pro-Russian government as democratic might might not quite, I think, be entirely fair. That if it He was elected
2: or, democratically, the Yanukovych government?
1: Yeah, with a fairly manipulated, I think, kind of environment from, you know, certain yeah, As opposed
2: to a Western-back coup in the streets where you had American diplomats actually handing out pastries to the protesters. Imagine um, how this looks from Moscow's perspective, Brendan. How um, would the Americans feel if the Russians were helping bring down democratically elected pro-American governments in the Western Hemisphere?
1: I don't. I don't think it's a case of wanting to defend either side. I think it's just a case of saying if you've got these governments, particularly in places maybe like Estonia, sort of Belarusia, uh, who are wanting to majorities wanting to get into NATO, there has to be, I think, at least some sense that maybe. Okay. The, so, the, did, Cuba have, right, a, did Cuba have a right? Did Cuba have a right system. to
2: be part of the Soviet Union in the 1960s? Does Taiwan have a right to be independent? I mean, I, I think so. I well, mean, that's a very and, foolish way of looking at the world. I mean, great powers <laughs> are not going to cop it.
1: But you know, <laughs> why risk a war with Russia
2: over Ukraine,
1: yeah. But you could say American overreaction to Cuba hasn't really solved much, has it? No, well, there's America had a right to, to
2: protect its own sphere of influence, just but, like the Russians do.
1: Well, and the Chinese do, it depends what the threat is. I mean, it depends if there's a threat. Well, the Russians
2: will say that it's a threat if you have the Americans supporting defensive weapons going to Kiev. And remember, Russia has a military superiority on its own borders. And this is a part of the world where no U.S. Army has ever fought. Why play with fire with a nuclear power?
1: My my point would be you've got a NATO that has already expanded. You can't sort of refight history in that regard. And having a NATO in the way that it is... If America wants to see itself as a global hegemon, it has to take on some financial burdens at times which are greater than some of its allies. Well, this is Trump's it, counter-argument, it, well, there's, though. There's, he will is,
2: disagree with that profoundly. And clearly,
1: will- but that, that process of supporting allies in a way that maybe allies felt nervous about increasing their own defense spending for both domestic reasons and maybe for antagonizing other nations has led to a pretty long period of unprecedented peace. Why in is those, Ukraine in a vital nations. national
2: interest of the United States?
1: Well, it's not a, it's not part of NATO, obviously, at the moment, but whether whether it wants to move to it, I think it's got to be, to some degree, up to the people of Ukraine, not entirely up to how great powers see spheres of influence.
2: Okay, so if the Cubans wanted to join the Russian military alliance, you'd be okay with that as well?
1: Well, it, I don't think it was, I mean, beyond certain business interests in, in Cuba, I don't think it was one of the great losses for America. To lose we need that how to a Cuban Missile Crisis. <laughs> I mean, do we want to have another one in the 21st century?
3: I would just like to step in, maybe to kind of, again, step back and, and maybe put this into perspective. I think that um, the whole issue of NATO has really opened up a debate that has been going on for a while. Do we need an alliance? Um, do we need an organisation that essentially um, ceased to have a mission in basically 1980? 9 or 1991 whichever way you want to take it the organization that has essentially kept on reinventing the reason for its existence. So the first time actually that NATO troops were deployed to fight was in 1999 to fight in Kosovo, Mm -hmm. okay, Uh, which wasn't part of the, obviously, of the NATO. Uh, Yugoslavia was at that time, or the the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia at that time was very much on on the fringes um, and very removed from the borders of then NATO, um, which would then start expanding from, from that year onwards. Um, and also the fact that the Article 5, which is the collective self-defense, essentially um, has been called for for the first time uh, after 9-11. So um, NATO has been mostly used to fight on the peripheries, not within NATO uh, states. And critics of NATO, essentially that NATO is constantly reinventing its mission, the organizational mission, and has been fighting in far removed places that don't seem to have exactly the direct... Uh, national security threat for the states that are part of that alliance. And then we come to another point, inevitably this assumption that it constantly keeps on balancing against someone and uh, Russia obviously when it uh, looks at the way that it has been spreading, sees that kind of balancing happening against it and not against maybe other uh, threats that NATO has sometimes been been citing as um, the kind of reason uh, for its existence.
0: We are nearing the end of the show and it's time for a gut call. If the election was held tomorrow and the US went to the polls, albeit some with marvellous knowledge of affairs and some with, as author Don Watson puts it, a bottomless ignorance on everything, who would America choose for the next four years? Gorana, what do you think?
3: I'm not going to be caught on record saying anything definitive, but I would certainly (laughs) say... I, I have made a promise to myself that I just want to have as, as few of the, the kind of on record uh, who will win and that comes back firing uh, at me. I know that, you know, just last year, this time, we've been saying there's no way Trump uh, has, uh, is going to become the GOP no- nominee, and that has happened. So I just don't want to be called next year, you know, at the same time. And there we are analyzing President Trump's first nine or so months in the office.
0: Well, I know Brendan and Tom aren't shy about going on the record, so...
2: Look, I think demography, electoral arithmetic, uh, Trump's erratic behaviour, they all point to a Hillary Clinton victory. But this is a very volatile election season. And one thing is clear, there's a lot of momentum, enthusiasm for Trump. And he's tapping into a sense of anxiety among folks, a lot of folks who don't usually vote, which is a huge advantage in a country with voluntary voting. So if he can find a way of winning over these folks, getting them out to vote... In enough of those Rust Belt states, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and finds a way of suppressing Hillary's efforts to reach out to the Obama coalition, then he
1: has a decent chance. But at this stage, Hillary's the favorite. I'll go in the opposite direction to Grana. Um I look into the crystal ball and say we'll be staying up late on election yeah. night. Uh, people will be nervously watching the state of Florida. Uh, they won't be hanging chads, but Trump will be inferring that the computer voting system isn't uh, free of corruption. Um, how the Democrats would take a very narrow victory uh, by Trump or a disputed victory, I think would be, quite, would be quite different to the Gore-Bush election, where in many ways Al Gore played, uh, I think, uh, a very quiet hand and just sort of went quietly into the night. Uh, the sense of dislike on both sides is dramatic. So a close, a very close and maybe even a disputed election like we had in 2000, I think would be uh, a potentially very traumatic thing for the United States.
0: So what the polls are telling us about November 8th today, Hillary's chance of winning 56.2%. Donald Trump, 43.8%. Um, that's a swing of 12.6% from last week. I don't know how much foreign policy plays into a candidate succeeding or or losing, Does? People care?
2: Well, find out in the debates. I mean, if Trump or Clinton make a big gaffe, then that could be telling.
0: All right, well, that brings us to the close of our second episode of The Race to the White House. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to The Conversation's website, theconversation.com. You can also search for us in your favourite podcast app. This podcast is made by 2SER 107.3 FM with the support of the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney and The Conversation. Thanks to Tom Switzer, Brendan O'Connor and Garana Gergic for helping us make sense of it all. Uh, we'll see you back here next week counting down The Race to to the White House.